Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. In this episode, Brian and I sat down with James Kilgore, a formerly incarcerated activist, researcher, and author based in Urbana, Illinois. He is the director of the challenging e-carceration project of Media Justice's No Digital Prisons campaign. He is also the co-director of First Followers Reentry Program and the author of five books, including Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. Our conversation addressed a number of issues related to e-carceration. We pushed back against the idea that electronic monitoring is better than prison and discussed the ways that e-carceration deprives people of liberty. We also talk about e-carceration and COVID-19, the ways that technology is being used by ICE and in pretrial and post-prison, and the ways that geofencing impacts communities. We'd like to thank everyone that subscribed to Beyond Prisons and to extend a special thank you to our volunteers and everyone that is generously supporting our work. Since Nathan's fundraiser this summer, our listenership has exploded. But if everyone who listened to this show signed up to give us $1 per month, we'd be able to work on the show full time, putting out more episodes on a regular basis. Our listenership increased in July from 5,000 downloads per month to 15,000 downloads per month. Both Brian and I are completely blown away by the number of people that are tuning in and writing to us to let us know that they've been impacted by the work that we're doing. We'd like to say thank you to everyone, uh, to all of our listeners, regardless of your ability to, to support us financially. And we appreciate all of you. Uh, If you'd like to support our work and you're able to do so, you can go to our website at beyondprisons.com backslash donate, and you can find different ways to support the podcast there, uh, including through DonorBox, uh, one-time donations. You can also cash app us, use PayPal, or you can become a sustaining subscriber on Patreon for as little as $1 per month. Again, thank you so much to everyone that's listening and We look forward to many, many, many more episodes. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, you know, really an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. I've been reading your work. Uh, I was sort of looking back. I think I've been reading your work for almost the better part of a decade now. Um, You've been working on the issue of electronic monitoring for a very long time. Um, and, you know, with tech and incarceration. And I guess, um, you know, just to sort of open up our conversation and start it uh, from, you know, sort of a broader place, you know, we recently had uh, Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law come on and talk about their books. So we talked a little bit about electronic monitoring and sort of where things are in the context of reform right now. But as somebody who's worked on this issue and, and studied it and paid such close attention and done organizing over the last, you know, 10 years or so, I was wondering if you could speak to sort of like how this conversation, how this uh, space has changed or evolved over time and sort of where you think it might be headed. Um, if you could sort of just talk about your experiences working on this, what you've seen change or stay the same or sort of new problems that are cropping up. 
I'd be interested to hear sort of that that top level perspective from you. Okay, well, thanks first of all, Brian and Kim, for having me on. It's a real pleasure to connect up with you again, and I mean, I also follow your work, so it's really nice to have an actual conversation and not be uh, just tweeting and retweeting and all that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we can talk in multiple characters instead of the that's right. further limits here. <laughs> So this issue of of electronic monitoring, and I mean, I want to, I just want to make sure that I mean, I kind of don't want to be pigeonholed into the electronic monitoring guy, but uh, but but I guess I've kind of dug that uh, I've dug that uh, space out for myself. So uh, <laughs> I do want to talk about how it connects up with other things. But um, of course. It, so I mean, really, I got interested in electronic monitoring because I got this thing put on me when I was released from prison in 2009. I came home and then the next day they came and put this thing on my ankle and told me that I'd only be allowed out of the house from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. Monday through Friday. That kind of changed my ideas of so-called freedom and what it might look like. And at that point, I mean, I'd been a researcher before I got locked up, so I always asked questions and I started asking questions about electronic monitoring and I realized that there really been almost no research done on this and what was out there was, you know, really garbage. Uh, whenever I talked to people about electronic monitoring and I said, I think there's some problems. I think we have to ask who's making the rules for this, who's making money off of it. But what was most important for me, even at that point was where is this technology going? If it can keep me in my house for 20 hours a week, I mean, or only let me out of my house for 20 hours a week. What else can it do, and what can it do to communities and the targeted groups of, you know, Black and Latinx and Indigenous folks that are really the the the, the main targets of mass incarceration? And so I kept asking those questions, and everyone kept saying it's better than prison. It's better than prison. What are you worried about it for? I said, mm, better than prison isn't really what we want to compare it to. We want to talk about freedom, and mm -hmm. we want to we want to recognize that this thing has some potential to be very problematic. So it really took about, of course, when I went around and talked to people who were on the monitor or who had had a loved one on the monitor, they totally got why I was doing this and understood that this was an oppressive te technology that we had almost no control over how, how it functioned. And so, but gradually as it came to be more widely used, it was all the way up to about 2015, we, I, I wrote a paper called Electronic Monitoring is Not the Answer, Critical Reflections on a False Solution. And um, Media Justice put that out and got quite a bit of response. So particularly from people who were involved in doing work with folks who are coming home or uh, work with youth who are having their people put on these monitors. And, they, you know, they had horrible problems just trying to get people out of their houses to actually do their programs. And so we then we then began to have broader discussions about electronic monitoring. And that was the point really at which I think there began to be some kind of awareness that this was a really an oppressive carceral technology, that being on an electronic monitor at home was not an alternative to incarceration, but it was an alternative form of incarceration. So I think that was really the the initial kind of point where some kind of critical mass of people embraced a critique of it and were willing to try to figure out what what we could do about it. 
So that's kind of how I got going on it. Um, so I, I don't know what your memories are of electronic monitoring back in those days. I'm interested to hear, how, you know, how it, how maybe it appeared in your on your horizon, and then we can maybe move to what it looks like in the present. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think very much similar to what you were saying. It was sort of treated as like uh, you were lucky if you got it, you know, compared to going to going to prison or or staying in jail. Um, it seemed like it was a limited option and that it was favorable. Um, you know, I think that for a while, at least from my perspective, um, as I guess prior to my exposure to abolition and my understanding of it, it seemed sort of almost like a cutting edge uh, area for reform, uh, you know, a place to head to. Um, and now that all just seems so dark and distant, you know, to me. Um, right. And so I'm always curious about these things, how they go from seeming like innocuous to, you know, being much more complicated than that. And then also sort of the accrual of power and money and, and interests, uh, you know, around that. Um, so I guess that that was sort of what I was what I was getting at. Um, and I, I don't know if you have anything else that that you want to say to that. Um, well, I think I mean, I think around 2015, 2016 is when we began to have a much broader kind of mass mobilization around the issue of mass incarceration. And mm -hmm. he, so at that moment, people began to explore what what we called alternatives to incarceration and electronic monitoring was fairly high on the list. Right. And so we came up. So I, I, I then you know, started this campaign with media justice called Challenging Incarceration. We came up with a list of of guidelines for respecting the rights of people who are on a monitor that people shouldn't be made to pay for it. They should get credit for time served. If they're on it pretrial, they should be able to participate in family and community activities and so forth. We came up with some basic rights which really weren't part of most people's regime of electronic monitoring. Most people had to really battle just to get out just to get out of the house. Mm -hmm. But what happened is that as the movement began to develop deeper critiques, those guidelines, although we had support from like 62 organizations nationally, including some kind of you know, mainstream liberal organizations like the National Office of the ACLU and the NAACP, it, that really kind of got left behind pretty fast and people began to see, wait, this, this, this device is not, is not going to be a savior. It's not going to be an alternative. And we need to look at the impact of this thing. And I think it also dovetailed with the fact that electronic monitors themselves as a technology were being shifted more and more from radio frequency devices, which simply told people, told the authorities whether or not you were at home, to GPS trackers, which then began to be able to track your location and began to also be able to create exclusion zones or restrict your movement, keep you out of certain parts of the city or keep you in certain parts of the city. And they also began to be used more on immigrants as well. And so there were, the people began to see some of the ways in which this technology might evolve that could become extremely, extremely problematic once it got into the realm of, G, of GPS. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, I think that's kind of a second stage of awareness. And I think we're, I think we're kind of in a third stage of awareness. And I'm, so I now prefer to talk about, talk about e-carceration 
and right. not necessarily to think of e-carceration as electronic monitors, which is what most people kind of do, but mm -hmm. rather to see e-carceration as like a network of punitive carceral technologies that intersect in various ways to deprive people of their liberty. I mean, deprivation of liberty is the fundamental definition of incarceration, and certainly things like facial rec recognition, license plate readers, and so forth. This technology deprives people of their liberty in different ways, whether it, whether it blocks them from access to employment, blocks them from access to health care, whether it connects them to people uh, in various parts of the country who may fit some kind of you know, risk assessment algorithm that, that then become co-conspirators. I mean, there's a whole range in which these technologies kind of begin to converge and intersect and become layered. And I think what's important about them is that they that it's not the way Edward Snowden has these technologies, which is, well, they're watching everybody and everybody needs to be worried. There's a criminalized sector of the population, disproportionately black, brown, indigenous, LGBTQIA, and also uh, just poor folks that, that are already in all these databases. And the more mm -hmm. data they have on that criminalized sector, the more criminalized they become, the more the more they can be de deprived of their of their liberty. So that's kind of where I think we're at at the moment. I think electronic monitoring is still kind of a core technology of elect of incarceration because it's so explicitly you know confines your movements and it's visible, which makes it a little bit different from things like facial recognition, which can also have horrendous impact, but you're not always aware that it's actually happening. Right. Um, if I could just follow up on that, you know, I think that's a perfect place to take it to sort of my next question. Um, you know, I had been reading some of your recent writings in Truth Out and something that you published uh, in the All of Us or None publication um, somewhat recently this year. And uh, there were there were sort of two things related to what you're talking about that I was wondering if, if you care to discuss at all. One was sort of the move away from ankle shackles towards the use of cell phone technology, um, which I had not heard of and I thought was really interesting. And I would like to hear sort of your thoughts on the implications of that. Um, but also the tie-in to contact tracing uh, and quarantine technology um, and sort of the, the carceral features of that. Did you, would you be willing to talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on there and share some of your thoughts on how that fits into, you know, particularly the latter part as it pertains to COVID and the quarantine and contact tracing, how that pertains to what you're talking about in terms of this larger network that we can think of as e-carceration? Sure. Well, I think, you know, a lot of people in the early days when you talk about how oppressive ankle monitors were, they'd say, well, if we could just make them smaller so they wouldn't stigmatize people and so they wouldn't irritate their legs, but they wouldn't have to be humiliated in public. So if we could put them in a cell phone or, you know, in a wrist, uh, in a wrist wearable or something like that, that that would make that would make things much better. And my reaction to that was always that's way worse. That's way worse, because what you're doing now is you're taking a device with very limited technological capacity and you're now creating a, a little a little sort of think tank surveillance device that you're wearing around all the time. Now we're already doing that for ourselves with our cell phones. We're already lugging these things around and telling 
you know, Google and everybody else that might want to know where we are and what we're doing and who we're hanging out with and all the stuff that most people either recognize as a problem on their cell phones but don't do much about it anyway. And I mean, I just don't know that many people that are walking around with flip phones and so forth because they don't want to, you know, they don't, they don't want to be tracked. So w these devices are really, you know, little, little, uh, you know, little bricks in the wall of the surveillance state that we're all kind of, that we're all kind of embracing. So I think the, I think the providers are going to probably move away from this stuff. I found a couple things happened during the COVID period. One of them was that since when people Google electronic monitoring, my name does come up sometimes, I started getting things in my inbox from these pop-up providers that had come up with a new uh, app, wow. a new app that could track location, that could measure your heartbeat, your respiration, that could tell you, you know, uh, how many calories you've eaten so far today. So to help you manage your diet and to remind you when your doctor appointments are, all these devices that like the Promise app uh, that Jay-Z and Rock Nation funded uh, that were supposed to be helpful devices, but are actually ways of gathering data on 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 individuals rather than providing them with with support. And so I then also found that in Illinois, where I live, a couple of interesting things happened. The first is that I work in a reentry program, so I work with a lot of people who are on parole, and the people that were not on electronic monitors were told by their parole agents to download the BI SmartLink app, which is the same app that they use on people who are under the control of ICE, and also is an app that's used by some uh, pretrial and post-prison authorities. And it, you know, it has the capacity, first of all, you sign on to it, usually either with facial or voice recognition, and it has various capacities not all of which are activated because my understanding is that as a consumer of this technology, as a Department of Corrections, you have to pay for different functionality. So if you wanted to do facial recognition logons, you got to pay a little bit for that. If you wanted to do location tracking, you got to pay a little bit for that. If you wanted to draw to grab biometrics like your respiration or your heart rate, you got to pay a little bit for that. So not all the Departments of Corrections were going whole you know, going the whole route and getting all the features, but it was just an interesting thing. And what they, they used it under the guise of saying, we don't really want our parole agents to have to come out and violate the social distancing rules by meeting with the people they're supposed to supervise. Of course, mm -hmm. they could just drive to the front of where these people lived and have them come out and stand by their front door and look at them to make sure they were there. But I guess the technology was much more uh, interesting and exciting. But I think it's taking us down a path now that we're going to see happening in other in other jurisdictions. I know Chicago has just ordered a bunch of uh, GPS uh, tracking devices uh, with that have like two two way communication, like a cell phone. So it's so not only are they tracking your location, but they can kind of give you orders or make you respond to to calls and so forth. Um, there's a, and I think there's there's one other piece that I think is really interesting. If you can bear with me for another minute or oh, two, oh, keep going, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so one of the things that I found looking at the technology in uh, COVID tracing in China and India 
was the fact that they were able to using the using people's test results they were able to give them a classification using you know something something like a risk assessment tool and given whatever the results were of that risk assessment or their testing results then they would have a QR code put on their phone and that QR code would determine their mobility so for example in China people were having to show a QR code that they were uh, COVID free in order to get on a train or maybe to get on a plane, sometimes to get into stores or to get into a theater or whatever that mobility was restricted by people having to show, which which is basically kind of an, um, what they call like an immunity passport to get into these, uh, to get into basic publicly public facilities. India did something a little bit more different, which might even be a little more scary, and that is that they would do the assessment of people in a region or in a neighborhood, and then based on the test results in the neighborhood, the, everyone in the neighborhood would get a category, and that category would determine how much they could move. So if they were determined to be high risk, they'd be under shelter in place. If they were determined to be low risk or no risk, they could move, they could move about freely. So that so that was all pretty scary. And then, ironically, I am in the the hub of the kind of university COVID testing experiment at the University of Illinois. They, they you know, this is a campus that's well known for engineering and computer science. It was the home of the first supercomputer and all that. The internet was invented here. So, you know, they, they wanted to be at the cutting edge of this. So they came up with this system where people, where all the students would have to be tested twice a week. And they have this thing called a spit test where you go and you spit into a little test tube and then they test your saliva for the presence of the virus. And so staff and students had to go and spit into the test tubes twice a week. And their idea was if, you know, if somebody's spit came, came back impure with a virus trace then they'd have to go in quarantine now it's i think the jury's still out on whether this is working or not they did they started it uh at the end of august when classes opened they came up with more positives than they expected so then they basically put everybody under restricted movement for two weeks which i believe ends today and um said that students could only come out if they're going to class or going grocery shopping or something. So they really, and they said they would, you know, suspend people or punish them in other ways if they violated the rules. And they seem to have been enforcing it pretty, pretty seriously. I know they did suspend a fraternity for previous activities, and they suspended a couple of students who were making YouTube videos on how to beat the system and not, and not have your, uh, and and get your phone to say you could go into buildings without. Uh, having to do all the testing because because the way the test worked is if you got a positive if you got a negative then you would get something on your phone so that would enable you to get into the classroom buildings to attend your classes if you didn't have that on your phone then you couldn't get in you couldn't go to class so the more interesting part is that the University of Illinois has an initiative called Rockwire and Rockwire is a is what they call a sandbox to design 
smart cities. You know, Internet of Things, everything computerized from, mm-hmm. you know, traffic lights to water to how hot the water is in your hot water heater kind of thing. And so they – Rockwire advertises on – you know, they have all these really posh two-minute videos saying how great their technology is. And they say everyone wants a smart city, but no one can recreate a city in a laboratory in a sandbox it's too small but we we have a sandbox with 60,000 people and we can gather the data to help you design your smart city so all of a sudden you kind of begin to connect some dots here that this is all a big kind of scientific experiment going on with in with the lives of students and staff and faculty who by the way I don't think signed up for all of this right but Anyway, so all these things get kind of scary when you start thinking about what this technology can really do in terms of controlling people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, was thinking uh, in part, you know, uh, what the impact on communities uh, is, particularly in terms of, you know, uh, what you've been talking about uh, in terms of things like reentry, uh, probation and parole, and, you know, using um, e-carceration technologies uh, to control, you know, populations. And, you know, you're, as you just pointed out, the, you know, test site, if you will, uh, is, you know, our universities right now um, all around the country. And we're seeing all the different ways that universities have, um not only it well, not it, it's not that they developed the technology someone developed technology maybe it wasn't there or it was privately owned or what have you but uh are using these various technologies to punish students in various ways we saw it in new york with you know students uh faces being you know picked out of a crowd and things like that and you know those students being suspended and you know or being expelled um which is even worse than you know just a, a temporary suspension um but i'm thinking again uh in terms of you know the impact of these technologies uh in communities particularly those communities mm-hmm. where people are being you know removed from you know and taken to prison uh, and return to over time, and you know, have you thought about what what that you know what these technologies are doing in in that context, and not just you know beyond just the electronic monitoring which we already addressed? Does that make sense? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, so this is where I think this whole notion of incarceration kind of kicks in, and where we can have. Well, I mean, one of the things we talk about is like geofencing, that you can technologically fence in an area so you don't have to build a wall, you know, like on the Mexican on the Mexican border. But but, you you know, you geofence people. And that's why when I talk when I think about what's happening in India, for example, that a community's movement is restricted based on their test, based on their test uh, test results. Well, I would see in the U.S., for example, that certain communities would be seen as high risk, high risks for civil unrest. 
And mm -hmm. so you would find ways to limit their movement, to restrict their movement. Um, you use a whole range of surveillance technologies to see how that's going, um, whether it's drones, whether it's high resolution cameras, you can see who's coming out of their house when they're not supposed to. With facial recognition, you can actually identify people who might be in a place where they're not supposed supposed to be. So the whole you know the whole range of the, of these technologies can be brought to bear you know to punish communities that are already criminalized and who are somewhat geographically segregated, but not a hundred percent, but somewhat geographically segregated to the point where you could you know, geofence certain communities, but then perhaps some people could have a, a pass on their phone or something that would allow them to move el elsewhere outside of that, uh, outside of that area. But I, I just think the, yeah, the, 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 the possibilities of surveillance and incarceration just are, are really boundless. And these people are only really beginning to play with this stuff. And, the, mm -hmm. and, and it's just that the, the COVID gives them an excuse to, to experiment. Absolutely. You know, they they can't really. Whereas before that, they'd kind of have a hard time. But it gives them a pretext to experiment, and the you know the next ones can be when they have some of this these technologies connected to algorithms, which are supposed to predict people's behavior, and then they can say in a certain part of the city, well, our algorithm tells us that there's likely to be violence happening in that part of the city, so we better lock them down. You know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, we, yeah. it's just so on it's just so easy to imagine once you're inside the carceral mentality. And then we, you know, we've been through the prison system and see how they segregate people, uh, you know, and, and how they punish people in a targeted way. Um, it's just not hard to see how they'll do that, particularly given where we're at at the moment, where we're seeing huge resistance to all sorts of, you know, things of the of the punitive you know racial capitalist state we're seeing all kinds of resistance and uh, you know what how does technology how can it be used to push back in ways that don't necessarily mean we're sending in you know the national guard to mow people down with machine guns mhm mm exactly exactly so it's much more perhaps subtle um and not in a way that you know people will look and say oh wow look that's policing Right. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it's it's really um, fucked up. Um, <laughs> it's just really <laughs> fucked up. Um, it, it, you know, I want to I want to um, build on that uh, and, you know, kind of tie this into something that you discuss in uh, in your last book, Understanding Mass Incarceration, a People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. And uh, you have a whole chapter um, in that book devoted to the folks um, that get left behind, right? And, you know, um, as you know from, you know, our connection on social media, both of my sons are in prison. Um, so, you know, I count myself in that group of people left behind. Um, but, you know, you talk about, or you say, uh, rather, quote, we often think of imprisonment as an individual experience, but the scale of mass incarceration and its, an, and its concentration in poor urban communities of color mean that it is a social collective process rather than one person's journey through the criminal legal system, right? And as you were talking, right, one of the things that all of this really kind of, you know, started uh, 
or not started, but made me think about um, is the ways that, you know, folks on that are left behind, folks that are at home are being, you know, implicated in this system, right? Um, and the impact that that's having, particularly on, you know, on women, because we're, it's not like we're signing up for these things, right? Like we, we're not choosing to, to do these things, but we're forced to participate in these things. And I'll give you an example um, for, uh, you know, if I want to have video visits with my sons, I have to give certain information to this privately owned company just to have a video visit, you know, like they want date of birth and they want social security number, which makes absolutely no sense to have a video visit. Like I, you know, why can't I just have a video visit? Right. But they want to be able to track and, you know, they have a whole thing where set up your profile and they want you to upload a picture. Well, I've not uploaded a picture, but they, you know, every single time I log on, you know, they prompt you and are like, well, would you like this, you know, would you like to post a picture now? Um, and that's, again, another way to, you know, gather uh, data and information on visitors, on people that are communicating with um, folks on the inside and, you know, making it seem like it's something really kind of innocuous, like, oh, well, you know, you, you set up a profile on Facebook, what's the big deal? Like, why wouldn't you set up a profile on GTL? You know, so, um, yeah, I don't know if you have some thoughts around that. Well, I think, yeah, a couple of things. First of all, I mean, the, the technology creates an even greater capacity for collective punishment. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, uh, so, I mean, when you, if you're geofencing people in a community and you're subjecting them to a whole lot of rules, it's basically everybody in the community is being hit by, you know, by this geofencing or by the surveillance cameras and all that sort of thing. So it's not even, I mean, yes, maybe some of those people are, you know, quote unquote, left behind from the prison experience, but they're all kind of collectively thrown together with this, with with this uh, punitive carceral technology and, and, and all surveilled. And then, as you're pointing out, the data is being gathered from them. And the data, you know, the data is, as you know, it's not innocent. I mean, that data is, it's marketable. You know, so it, it, they can sell it to people that might want to market things to uh, that to that constituency, or they can sell it to people that want to make sure that constituency doesn't, you know, enter their space and, you know, and criminalize their space. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which that, that data, that data can be used. So the data gathering becomes maybe in the long run, at least as important as the, as the punishment, because there, there's ways for people to make, you know, to make money. So our bodies, our data becomes commodified. Um, and so, and, and once again, it's one of those things that, as you say, it's, it is sort of innocuous. They're not telling you, well, if you, if you give us this information, these are the, these are the companies that we're going to sell that to, and this is how they're going to use it. I mean, mm -hmm. no one's ever heard of any kind of transparency like that. Yeah. We have no idea what happens with this data. And, but we do know that most of it's going to end up on the cloud. And the clouds are owned by, you know, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, IBM. So they own more than 50% of the cloud space. So they can connect the dots of 
all those different databases and all those different individuals and, and, and create all kinds of both individual and collective profiles. It's all Absolutely. completely beyond our control, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. unless we ride it, rise up against it and push back, but it, 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 the first step is to kind of get an awareness of it to actually recognize that this is going on. Yeah, and and to recognize that it's a problem that you can actually do something about, right? Because mm-hmm. I remember um, a couple of years ago there was an experiment uh, happening at one of the prisons where they were um, collecting uh, digital fingerprints of all visitors. And it was like, what the hell is this? Like, when when did this start? Um, and you know, they were swiping like your um, your uh, ID, your state driver's license, right? And it it's like, where is this information going? And what is this? You know, like, how are you using this, right? Because we know that this isn't just you know just so that you can go in to get a visit. I mean. You know, <laughs> it's right. it's not. Um, and it, you, it, I mean, obviously, in that moment, you're probably not going to, you know, take a stand um, and just, you know, walk out of the visit because, you know, it's a visit and visits, you know, are usually few and far between, and people take time off and it costs them money and childcare and all the things, right? So all you want to do is get in and see your loved one. And this, these are the hoops that they make you jump through. And if you contest that, then you won't get in. And if, you know, if you get in that one time, maybe they don't let you in the next time. Right. Or if, you know, it's, it's also a way I think um, to criminalize um, a group of people that, you know, have people on the inside. Right. Like it's a way to basically say, okay, well, you know, maybe you had, you know, um, some kind of minor offense in your record years ago and they don't want you coming into the prison, you know, to visit someone, you know, so they use it to keep people out in that way. But also, you know, it's like the association. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense to either of you? Um, I know, like I, I said at the beginning, and you know, I'm okay if this stays in. Um, I'm on medication right now, so I'm either rambling and making no, no. sense, um, or you know, some of this stuff is is lucid and and working. So <laughs> no, I was I was looking for it while you were talking because this conversation, um, you know, I I feel like Kim, maybe you and I talked about this like one or two years ago, but we were trying to get in touch with somebody on the inside and I was like signing up for an account and I was just while I was waiting for it, cause it wasn't working. I was looking through like the privacy statement or the terms of service or something at the bottom. Yes. And it, do you remember what I'm talking about? I couldn't find the tweet, but it was talking about how they reserve the the right to sort of like use your voice print yep. Yep. and like the, to like model basically your voice. Yep. And so, you know, in some ways too, and I, and I think you, you both have sort of touched on this, but just to draw it out a little bit more, it's not even, it, or it's it's also about I, I think adding data points to model you know like threatening tones of voice or like you know like you were saying like problematic uh, or like uh, areas where crime is likely to happen you know sort of like that predictive or sort of like um, algorithmic modeling of what uh, I, and I think I've seen like news articles over the mm-hmm. past year or so where they talk about you know, with facial recognition, not just identifying people, but being able to tell by somebody's facial features if they have a propensity to violence or mm-hmm. something like that. 
Um, or, or using keywords, um, right. you know, that, uh, that people may use in conversation and isolating those words, taking them out of context, using that because the algorithm says that word signals that there's, you know, a riot about to happen or, you know, someone's plotting something. Um, and, you know, it, it's just, oh, right. gosh, it's. it's so, and there's a, I, I think there's also an there's an interesting part of this is, a, is that it poses as um, that it's junk science posing as science and research. Indeed. So, for example, at Purdue, at Purdue University right now, they're getting ready to do this experiment where they're going to with 250 people who are coming out of Indiana prisons on parole. 125 of them are going to be put on these electronic monitoring devices that will track their risk, respiration, their heartbeat and a whole range of other biometrics. And 125 of them won't be on that. And the whole purpose of this is to develop exactly what you all are talking about, which is to be able to define what are the biometrics that are associated with with violence, what are the biometrics that are associated with maybe the need for support, haha, um, you know, all those kinds of things. So they're, it's it's just it's just become like a another area of another industry, you know, and um, mm -hmm. and none of course. I mean, the reason why we're all abolitionists is you can't trust any of these assholes, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, whether it's one of the companies, whether it's the Department of Correction, or whether it's these academics that think they know better. These academics that can listen to a hundred, a hundred, you know, black, brown, and white people say how horrible prison is and how it doesn't help anybody, and then they're going to have to go out and do a and going to have to go out and do a survey to see whether or not that's true or not. Mm -hmm. Those are the, you know, those are the people that are. You know that 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 are just you know perpetuating all this and using this. I mean, this COVID opportunity as a way to in, in, enhance their enhance their power and grow their markets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, COVID is uh, for a lot of academics um, it's a career move. It's you know, it's uh, the next journal paper, the next book. It's you know, it's, it's like that. Uh, what is that Simpsons where they they say it's a Christatunity, like Homer says on the Simpsons? You know, right. um, exactly, exactly. But I mean, it's like you know, to your point about um, using these uh, biometrics to, you know try to sort out um, or, or to develop a kind of picture of, you know, how this is all associated with violence. Like it, it just, oh my gosh, it, it's just so infuriating and, and just, I, I, I don't want to say ridiculous, but it does seem ridiculous in, in like the most gross sense, but, you know, oppression is the thing that we can say is the most closely associated with violence. Like people are going to respond to the conditions of oppression. That's what people are responding to with violence, right? And it's like, but they're like, no, 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 it's these other things and violence must be controlled. It must be suppressed and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, why is this violence happening, right? Why, who is creating the conditions for violence to exist because it's not like, you know, if, if you just, if people just went to prison, you know, and it's like, and they serve their sentence and that, and I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination. So I want to be clear. I don't want any listeners to, you know, misinterpret this, that, you know, that that's fine, but there, people don't just go to prison. Right. And are left alone. It's like you go to prison and then you're, 
confronted with, you know, a thousand different little punishments every single day, right? And I know mm -hmm. you can speak to that better than I can, but I know from, you know, all of the people that I know, you know, that, that have been uh, inside that, you know, it's, it's all of these little things, right? And I know, you know, one of my sons um, always says to me, you know, I talk to him almost daily and I'm like, how are you doing today? And he's like, I'm jailed the fuck out, right? And I'm like, me too. Right. <laughs> Me too. I'm jailed out mm -hmm. too. Like I'm sick of it, you know? And he says that as a way to describe the many little ways that the system cuts at you, right? Like they're constantly jabbing and jabbing and jabbing and jabbing. So if it's not, you know, screwing with the mail one day, it's, you know, destroying people's property the next, or it's, you know, not giving people uh, the, the food that's on their, you know, uh, you know, on their dietary sheet, or it's losing their laundry or breaking their property, like so many different things that you have to deal with on a daily basis, right? Including not being able to call or see your loved ones and all of these uh, different things. And, you know, we're expecting people to just kind of like be okay with all of that. And we're talking about people that have have or are dealing with a great deal of trauma, you know, themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And trauma that is being untreated, neglected, and exacerbated by the very conditions of the place that's claiming to want to rehabilitate, quote unquote, rehabilitate, which is just bullshit. I mean, the fact that we have, you know, uh, life sentences is a testament to the fact prison is a failure, right? Prison is a complete failure because if it was doing the thing that it claims to do, people wouldn't have to be there for their entire lives. Anyway, I don't know if you want to respond to that. Either one of you, I'm okay. I know that was my rant, but you know, um, there wasn't a question well, there, James. Well, I think, but I, I think there's, I, I think there's something and maybe to connect it back also that, I mean, as you're, you know, in, in prison, it's, you know, yeah, there's daily, there's hourly things that you want to fight back against that, that, that are just so outrageous and so inhuman and so oppressive. And part of your, I mean, once you're someone who's decided, you know, that this is a system of oppression, then you have to figure out, okay, how can I fight back against this? What, because you can't fight everything because you go because you you try to fight everything you end up fighting nothing and you end up you know spending your whole uh time just being punished and not being able to even begin to resist and so how do you how do you how do you choose what to resist and how do you how do you mobilize how do you educate how do you take action to to push back against it and i think so so i think that's one of the things that i'm you know, we obviously grapple with the same thing on the outside because all the things you just listed, Kim, are all things that we could do campaigns against or we mm -hmm. could mobilize people against, but we can't campaign against everything. And that's part of why we campaign against the whole system and don't try to go for, you know, piecemeal reform. But at the same time, when we think about incarceration, for example, now, how do we target to push back against this? How can we you know, how can we stop this thing from moving from moving forward? I mean, where is the point of leverage? You know, where is the point that uh, that we can mobilize people to see that, well, 
even if we stop or severely reduce the presence of steel and concrete cages, how do we keep looking ahead to recognize, well, they're going to come up with something different because they think in these 10, 20, and 30-year time horizons, and we don't tend to think like that, so we have a hard time staying ahead of the game. And that, to me, is a big, is a big challenge trying to figure out how do, we, how do we stay ahead of the game? How do we predict where, where their reforms or where the changes they make are going to lead, and how do we block them from becoming a repeat of a system of incarceration with different names, different technologies, or whatever? I mean, I think that's a big point. I know you talked to Maya and Vicky, but that's a big point of their book, that mm-hmm. these reforms end up taking us back to where we started from, only it, maybe it looks a little different, maybe it's got different names, but at the end of the day, you know, it's a system of, pun- system of punishment, a system of deprivation of liberty. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we are coming up on time, and I want to be respectful of your time, James. So, um, you know, Kim, did you have a last question that you wanted to ask? Did you want me to ask it? Uh, um, I do because I, I think it, uh, I think it's a, a really important question, but I also think it's uh, one that we tend to you know not talk about enough, and it's one that you discuss in your um, in your book that I mentioned previously. Um, you asked the question, uh, and I think it was in chapter fourteen. When does mass incarceration end? Right, and I think that you know that right there is. Um, for a lot of folks that that are listening. um, Yeah. How do we know that, you know, how do we know that we've won? I mean, I have my own vision of that, but I think that, you know, um, your response to that, and I don't know if it's changed uh, since, you know, since you wrote that or since the book was published, but um, I'd love to hear it. Well, for me, mass incarceration is embedded in a system of racial capitalism. And you're not going to change mass incarceration. You're not going to get rid of mass incarceration until you fundamentally change racial capitalism. And I think we need to. So I think we need to think that uh, to remember. There's a couple of things that um, that Ruthie Gilmore always reminds us about abolition. Mm-hmm. That I think I, I I get sometimes get irritated because I think people I see people when they talk about abolition they get they get these they get stars in their eyes like we're going to have this wonderful world without prisons and they kind of forget about who's in the way mm-hmm. between here and there you know that that it's global capitalism that's in the way of from here to there and that 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 abolition needs to be red as she puts it it needs to be working class it needs to embody alternative political economies whether you're you know whether you're an anarchist a communist a socialist whatever that alternative political economy is that's going to be have to be a part of dealing with with mass incarceration she also emphasizes it needs to be green that we're sitting in the middle of you know of of the climate catastrophe and luckily you're not in california at the moment right or are you in california at the moment i'm not Um, actually uh in philly but my daughter lives in uh california and i have right so here we here we are in the middle of climate crisis. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's all interconnected. And then she also agree. She also emphasized, which I think very few people talk about, is that 
it, it, it has to be international. It has Absolutely. to be global. This, yes. this thing is really connected to the way in which the entire system operates. So, for example, at the moment, like, I mean, India looks to me like it's going to have a COVID epidemic that's going to just completely dwarf what's happening in the United States. But how many people in the U.S. even even think about, even think about that and the implications of what that means for freedom globally? Mm-hmm. Freedom globally, but how do we connect our, you know, what we our, our political actions to that? Because you know, being you know, being old school, being you know, a creature of the '60s and '70s, um, one of the things that was important about those movements, and I don't want to romanticize them and make them sound like they had all the answers because they certainly didn't. But one of the things about those movements that's a little bit different from movements today is they were they were they were international. They were they did focus on wars in Southeast Asia. They did focus a lot on support for liberation movements in Southern Africa and in Latin America. And people had this notion of of kind of global system of imperialism. And I think we're I, I think we have to we have to kind of revisit some of that. I mean, I spent 18 years of my life living in Southern Africa, so I'm pretty aware of what the world looks like from a different, you know, from a perspective outside the U.S., and I think that's something that, that really we need to think about seriously as we're talking about ab- abolition. What is it that we're abolishing, and how broad does it have to be? Absolutely. Absolutely. Amen. Well, James, thank you so, so much. Um, before we let you go, I just wanted to give you the chance to tell people about what you're working on now, how they can find your work, you know, all of that, if you wanted to give yourself a little plug. Okay. Um, so I work, I mean, I work in a, in a campaign called, Ch- you know, Challenging Incarceration, which is, which is part of uh, the work of media justice, which, you know, fights for, you know, some kind of particularly racial justice in, in, in the media, but a lot of their work also focuses on the kinds of, some of the technologies of surveillance and particularly the racialized, you know, versions of all, of all of these things, how they impact, you know, black and um, Latinx and indigenous people dis, disproportionately. So, I mean, I'm, tr- I'm trying to, I'm working on challenging incarceration in, in that context and really trying to, at the moment, figure out some of the things that I've been talking about here. How does, how does electronic monitoring, incarceration, all of these things, how do they fit together in terms of trying to, trying to see where the where the where the system is going? So we're pull, I mean, we're pulling together kind of a a map of the U.S., which looks at kind of the hot spots of incarceration and trying to get people to see how this thing is is spreading in different parts. But we also work a lot with local organizations. Particularly, we've had a lot of interaction with the with some of the bond funds particularly the Chicago Community Bond Fund mm-hmm. in terms of dealing with the practical implementation of electronic monitoring as a pretrial uh, as a pretrial tool and also with the National uh, Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls who've been one of the few kind of national organizations that really take a strong position on this and seem to seem to kind of get how important how important this is so that's kind of what kind of what we're doing it's a period of where also we're having to kind of rethink some of the some of the work that we've been doing because pushing things in legislatures or policy measures is quite difficult at the moment since those those uh since those spaces aren't operating uh, at, at full capacity, and they have their own problems anyway when they do, but um, we haven't been able to do much work in that space. So that's 
that gives you at least some idea of what I've been doing. If people want to look at more, they can visit uh, challengeincarceration.org or um, I'm, I t- tweet at, at Wazen, W-A-A-Z-N-1. And for anybody who's interested, the Wazen stands for We Are All Zimbabweans Now. Oh, I w- I've been wondering about that. That's really interesting. And that's the that, title that's a, that's of a, one of your books, right? Right, the title of my first novel, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I um, didn't quite recall, but yeah. Um, fantastic. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you. It's been really, it's been really a pleasure uh, being, being with you. I really appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. We recently launched our new website www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during the COVID-19 crisis, including a link to a downloadable PDF in small and large print formats. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.